Let's pray and ask the Lord to send His Spirit to us as we open and consider His Word together. Our Father in Heaven, we we bless You and we praise You in the name of Your Son. Uh, We thank You, Holy Spirit, that You have given us the Word of Life, and we pray now that, Holy Spirit, You will give to us the power and the clarity to understand this, to apply it, to think carefully and accurately about who You are, about who we are before you and, and the only remedy that we have for our sin and misery in the person and work of Christ. We thank you that you have declared yourself to us, that you've not left us groping in the dark, trying to discover who you are and what you've done, but you've declared plainly to us all things that are necessary for life and godliness. And we, we thank you for your word in the name of, of Christ, our Savior and King. Amen. Take your seat and turn with me to Judges chapter 2. I have a, an edit to make at the beginning. Uh, I have in the, the worship guide that we would go through from chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. We're actually just going to deal with chapter 2 today. Uh, I'll, I'll wait on the next part of that. Uh, also, with that comes a change of titles. If, you want, if you're one of those note-takers and the title that's, that I had given to Misty to put in the bulletin, I've changed. And I think this is a more helpful title, thinking through what we're going to focus on today. The title of the sermon is A Forgetful People and an Unchanging God. A Forgetful People and an Unchanging God. And that's really going to be our focus today in chapter 2, is, is this contrast, this stark contrast between these constantly changing people and a God who is fixed immutable, and certain in all that he is and all that he does. Eight years ago uh, this month, on the occasion of our 20th anniversary, Gene and I had the opportunity to go, and one of the things we got to do was visit the Pearl Harbor Memorial. Uh, I highly recommend it if you ever have the occasion to go. And when you go to the, to the memorial, there's, there's a museum there, but the memorial itself requires getting on a boat and, and riding out into the harbor to the memorial of the USS Arizona sunk on the day of the attack on Pearl Harbor. But before you get onto the boat and go out, you sit and watch an introductory video. And I don't remember the video, it's probably 15 or 20 minutes, but it explains not only the background historically of what happened with the sudden attack, but also what's happened since then with respect to the USS Arizona that lies beneath the waters and how and why the memorial was constructed the way that it was. And so this this introductory video is really necessary to get the full effect and experience of going out to the memorial. Chapter 2 in Judges serves in a very similar way. This is the introductory video to watch so that we can understand the history of what's taken place, but also understand what we're going to see over and over and over again as we walk through the rest of the book of Judges. Uh, we've, this is now the third message already in this book. We've had much introductory material, but it continues because a lot of things that God is pressing upon us before we get into Ehud and the rest of the Judges. There are things that we need to understand about who God is, about who his people are, so that we can better understand what takes place in the chapters that follow. Today, two headings, two, two contrasts that we're going to see. One is the, the peril of forgetfulness. 
This is, this is a theme that drives its way through not only this chapter, but the rest of the book. It's a forgetfulness. And then we're going to see the nature of Yahweh, and, and particularly we're going to focus on his unchanging character. So let's read together. I'm going to begin in verse 6, and I'll read through the end of Judges chapter 2. I hear now the word of the risen Christ. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress." Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's let's think together first of all, about the forgetfulness of God's people. Forgetfulness is a common theme in the Scriptures. Over and over again, in both the Old Covenant and the New, we are admonished, do not forget. Do not forget. Remember the Lord your God. And in preparation to lead his people into the promised land, God frequently admonished his people. He frequently admonished them not to forget him, his covenant, and his mighty deeds. Now, lest we we think that the the Bible uses this term forget only as a a cognitive default. It's not not only a a mental defect 
that you have something has slipped your mind. This happens to us all the time. Uh, where did I put my keys? Where is my wallet? What did I do with that, whatever it is? You know, we, we forget things. We have these conversations. If you're married, you know this. I didn't say that. Yes, you did. I don't remember saying that, or I don't remember you saying that. We forget. We are forgetful people just by, by our frail nature. But that's not only what the scriptures are talking about, that somehow cognitively they had lost data. One dictionary defines it this way, to forget means to stop remembering, ignore, dismiss from the mind, abandon, neglect, or cease to care about. See, simply to forget something, to have something that was once in your mind, maybe that um, geometric theorem that you knew very well when you were in high school, that somehow today you couldn't remember that. Is that sin? Of course not. It's not, it's not sinful simply to, to fail to recall something because it has your brain has overwritten that data with something else. That's not what we're dealing with here. To forget is, is an act of the will. The kind of forgetting that we're seeing among God's people was intentional. It was purposeful. It was neglecting the things that God had given to them and neglecting the things that God had said, you have to hold on to this. Sometimes even with our, our sons and daughters, we have to do this sometimes, right? Because there are things that we, we say, son, you cannot forget this. Or daughter, you cannot forget this. Write it down, put a reminder somewhere, put a post-it note on your mirror, whatever you have to do, you cannot forget this because it's important. The Lord is saying something far more substantial to his people. You cannot forget these things or it will do much harm to you down the road. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This, of course, is... A sermon, part of a sermon that Moses preached. This becomes uh, part of this text. Becomes what is known as the Hebrew Shema. This was sort of a creed. This was a confession of faith among Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter six, beginning in verse one, listen to this. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So in preparation to send his people over the Jordan into the promised land to take possession, the Lord has said, these are the things you must hold on to. These are the things that you must not forget. He continues in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, this is the Hebrew Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you see, there are a series of commands here designed to make sure the people of God don't forget to make sure this is lodged in their, their memories, not just as data, but it's front and center driving everything that they do. Be diligent, not only so that you can know them, but to teach them to your children. Put them 
in places where you can remember so that when you're getting up, when you're walking along the way, when you lay down at night, every aspect of your life, you're rehearsing these things. What things? I'm glad you asked. Clearly the people of God did forget, and their forgetfulness ends up standing as as a compelling warning to us because the kinds of things that they forgot are the very same kinds of things that, can we be honest, we are prone to forget. Let's think about this. First of all, they forgot the clear commands of God. Turn back to Judges chapter 2. They forgot the clear commands of God. God didn't stutter. God did not mumble. God did not speak in such a whisper that they could not hear him nor understand him. God made his commands perfectly clear, and they forgot them. And Again, to forget is an act of the will. To forget bears moral responsibility. Look back in verse 12 in Judges 2, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. See, as God brought them out and brought them into the wilderness stood before them, thundered before them at Sinai, and gave them his law. What nation is like this, Moses said in Deuteronomy, who has statutes and rules and who can know their God? What nation is like that? The answer is there's not another one. This is the only nation in history that Yahweh has come, covenanted with, and dealt personally with them. Then in verse 17, of the same chapter, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. See, their fathers had a clear set of commands, and by implication, they had been taught those commands, and they turned away. See, forgetting isn't a passive exercise. They turned away from the commands and statutes that God had given to them. And this gets repeated throughout the chapter. Look at verse 20. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. They forgot, willfully forgot the commands that they were given by God and and passed on to them by by their fathers. To forget the kind of forgetfulness that the Lord warns against, first of all, was his commandments, his rules, his statutes. He'd made himself plain, he'd made himself known, and his people ignored that. But they're not done. They're not finished forgetting. They also forgot the covenant promises of God. God had made covenant promises to them, both blessings and curses, and they forgot those. They ignored those. They acted as if God had not spoken at all, or as if God had not promised anything to them. Look back at verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. Well, that's nothing other than the fulfillment of God's promise to them. God said, I will bring you into the land. I will drive out my enemies, your enemies before you, and you will take possession. Not because you're mightier, not because you're greater, not because you're more holy or righteous, but because those nations have defiled the very earth. And because of their sin, I'm going to drive them out before you. I'm going to give that land to you, even though you don't deserve it. 
You will take take over cisterns that you didn't dig. You will pick and eat fruit from trees you didn't plant. I will give this to you as a promise. And the people of God forgot that. They began to dwell in the land as if they had it by right, as if they should own it, as if they had, had merited this gift. They forgot God's covenant promises. See, there's, there's another side of this. It is not only God's covenant blessings that they forgot, but also they forgot God's covenant curses. Look down to verse 15. Still here in Judges chapter 2. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. See, this is exactly what God had said would happen. The covenant they made, that he made with his people at Sinai was a covenant of, of works. It was a conditional covenant. Do this, and you will gain the inheritance. You will gain to the land. You will have my blessing. If you don't do this, I will expel you from the land. You will not receive that promised blessing. Then in verses 20 and 21, we see the same thing again. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant, I will no longer drive out before them, verse 21, any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. The people forgot that. They began to live in in prosperity, in comfort, in peace, and they forgot that the Lord had said to them, the peace that you enjoy, the fruitfulness you enjoy, the prosperity you enjoy is because of my blessing but that blessing is tied to your faithfulness. Deuteronomy chapter 4, again, in one of those sermons that Moses preached in preparation for the people of God to enter the promised land, he said, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. They forgot the covenant promises of God, both the blessings and the curses. But again, they're not done forgetting. They've forgotten the clear commands of God. They've forgotten the covenant promises of God. But we also see in chapter 2, they forget the mighty deeds of God. Look at verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And the next generation forgot that. They forgot the mighty hand and outstretched arm of the Lord that had, who had delivered their fathers, who had protected them, who had provided for them, who had driven out the nations before them. They forgot those things. Then down in verses 18 and 19, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. So even when the Lord brought a judge in to deliver them, to remind them, they forgot again. As soon as that judge died, they went right back to their evil ways. They forgot, again, willfully, the commands, 
the covenant promises and the mighty deeds of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, the Lord through Moses says, You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is He who has given you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant, which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Now it will be, if you ever forget Yahweh your God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of Yahweh your God. You see what, what the Lord is communicating here through Moses is it is by my power that those nations were driven out. And if you forget that, then you're going to perish just like they did. This is, this is plain cause and effect. But there is another kind of forgetfulness that we see on display here in chapter 2. And again, it comes out over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And it's, we may call it generational forgetfulness. A generational forgetfulness. We see this, in, in, sadly, in verse 10. All that generation, the generation of Joshua, also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They didn't know Yahweh. They didn't know him. And then down in verse 17, we see the same kind of thing again. The second half of verse 17, they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. There is a forgetfulness from one generation to the next. We saw in Deuteronomy 6, the command was, teach these things to your children. All of your life is oriented with your children to instructing these things, instructing into them those things that are most important. Yes, they need to learn how to farm. Yes, they need to learn how to milk the goat. Yes, they need to learn how to earn a living. But if they forget God in that process, what have they gained? The Lord Jesus later on would tell his disciples, what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and he loses his soul. Deuteronomy chapter 4. The Lord through Moses, again, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord, how you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. It was a generational forgetfulness. Fathers and mothers failed to teach. Sons and daughters failed to hear. And the instructions and the heart of God was lost in the generation that would come. But there is a fifth element of forgetfulness that we see here in Judges chapter 2. The worst of all, they forgot Yahweh himself. They forgot Yahweh. And, and notice what he says, verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, did not know Yahweh or the work that he had done. Notice it says they, they didn't know about Yahweh. It says they didn't know Yahweh. See, there is a difference between, again, the, 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 the facts of the Scriptures and knowing God. Ralph Davis points out 
that this phrase in verse 10 is precisely parallel to the sad indictment that we read in 1 Samuel chapter 2 about the sons of Eli. You know that story. Eli had two sons that were described as wicked men, and yet they were priests. And notice what it said in in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were vile men. They did not know Yahweh. No, they were priests. I mean, they knew they knew the law. They, they knew what they were supposed to do. They knew how this whole sacrificial system worked. Now, you, you can read on how they corrupted that. But it wasn't that they didn't know the facts about Yahweh. They didn't know Yahweh. They didn't know him as God. They didn't know him as Lord. They didn't know him as the covenant keeper. Surely, there must be an objective content to our faith. And as parents, may this be the the subject of our frequent prayers, that as we are hopefully diligent to catechize our children, to teach them the things of God, that we would not be satisfied with the mere knowledge of the things of God, but that we would beg God that he would make himself known to them. Pray that our children would actually know God and delight in his statutes, delight in his law, delight in him. Not just the gifts they receive from him, but delight in him. We desperately need the power and the wisdom of the Spirit of God through his appointed means to create a fire and a fervency of faith so that we're not merely passing along a dead orthodoxy. We don't want children who can who can recite the truth but don't know it, who can articulate the gospel but haven't embraced it. Forgetfulness of God, forgetfulness of his commands, forgetfulness of his promises, forgetfulness of his mighty deeds always leads to devastation. So I'd ask you, how's your memory? knowing that I'm not asking just simply how's your cognitive function in the area of recalling details and events and facts or even scripture verses. But do you know Yahweh? Are you remembering his statutes? Does it shape you? Does it mold you? Does it change you? Does it change how you live? Does it change the priorities? Does it change how you interact with the world around you? Ralph Davis makes this this insightful remark. He says, the Bible is clear. Amnesia produces apostasy. Amnesia produces apostasy. Now, I told you I wanted to contrast two observations. The first is is forgetful, forgetful men. God's forgetful people. But I want to contrast this with the nature of Yahweh himself as he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. The nature of character, the nature and the character of God is, is on full display throughout the book of Judges. But chapter 2 gives us, I think, some tools to help us understand correctly how God has revealed himself, what he has revealed about himself, so that we are not, um, we don't fall prey to some, frankly, pagan understandings of God. We can see. In chapter 2, for example, uh, we can see that it highlights various attributes of God. His, his wisdom, his, his justice, his mercy, his holiness, his gracious dealings with Israel. But I want to focus on one particular observation about the nature of Yahweh. And that's the focus on his immutability. 
his unchangeable character. And, and with that, there's another word that you, you, you ought to know, his impassibility. He is impassionate, meaning he does not, he's not acted upon or acted outside of himself by his passions, by his emotions. And I was provoked in this area. I said that on purpose. You'll, you'll know why in a few moments. I was provoked in this area. As I was reading a commentary that's been helpful so far, but he had a graphic on one of the pages. Uh, and, and you're familiar with the, the, like that recycling symbol, the little triangle that goes with the arrows in a circle? Well, it's a similar graphic. It was a graphic illustrating the cycle of depravity with the Israelites. And it was an accurate little uh, graphic. It had, it had Israel's apostasy, followed by their, their um, being delivered over to enemies, followed by their groaning and crying out to God, followed by them being delivered, and then they return again to their apostasy. And it's just this vicious circle. But the commentator said, this parallels God, and then he had a graphic next to it that showed God's anger, his oppression of the people, then a change of mind in God, then his deliverance, and then back to his anger again. Is this correct? Does God change his mind? Does does God in any way change? either as a consequence of, of something outside of himself, something that the creatures have done, or even something that he himself ordains as his own change. He, in a sense, can God decree his own change? In Judges chapter 2, look at verses 12 and 18 in particular. There is some language here that, again, thinking about this as a preview movie, and, and, and setting the stage for things that we're going to observe as we work through the rest of the book of Judges. Look at verse 12. And we've read it a couple of times already, and you've perhaps already noticed this. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. No, I said I was provoked. I, I wouldn't ask for a raise of hands, but you've surely had things just this week, maybe even just this morning, that have provoked you to anger. Now, we recognize what our Lord said, that it is, it is out of the human heart, the depraved human heart, that sinful thoughts come, murderous thoughts, evil thoughts, anger. So we can't say, it's wrong for me to say, he made me angry. That anger is just in me. It's a sin in me. But there are provocations to that. And, and I don't have to enumerate those. You know in your own heart what those provocations might be that would stir up the sinful anger in you. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Have you ever been moved to pity because of a maybe an animal in distress, and your heart was moved by that? Certainly about a human being in distress. One of your own children, perhaps inappropriately you've been moved to pity when you know that it's time to discipline, and you get the crocodile tears, and you're moved 
to pity, maybe you don't do your duty as a parent because of their groaning and their crying. But is, is God affected in that way? It, it, so the, the clear language here, God is provoked to anger, or he is moved to pity. What do we make ab- about those statements? How do, we, how do we reconcile that with our understanding of God? One theologian, a, a modern theologian by the name of Bruce Ware, says this, God changes from anger to mercy, from blessing to cursing, from rejection to acceptance. Each of these changes is real in God, though no such change affects in the slightest the unchangeable supremacy of his intrinsic nature. He says, God changes from anger to mercy. He changes from blessing to cursing, and that that is an actual change in God. Is that right? No, it's not. It is a denial of the doctrine of God that's been handed down to us from the early church. God does not change. But how do we reconcile the language here? Nothing in God changes. You and I change all the time. And certainly our minds can be changed. Our attitudes can be changed. Our emotional state can be changed. We talked about this a little bit even in Sunday school. I mean, we are so fickle at times that we can be in a, in, a, in, a, in a sour mood and walk in and realize, oh, there's cookies for dessert. I'm happy now. Or the other way around. It's a perfectly good day until the tire goes flat. And all of a sudden, it's a bad day. We can change with the slightest of provocations. Does God change from the outside in, as it were? Our emotional temperature can change because of all manner of things. But our understanding of God must stand in a stark contrast to humanity. As we've said over and over again, we can say in many ways, qualified ways, we are like God by virtue of being made in his image. Those who are Christians are made more like God We are progressively transformed and renewed and conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So in those qualified ways, we can say we are like God, but we may never, ever, never, never, ever say that God is like us. We are creatures. He is the infinite, incomprehensible, holy, immutable God. He is not creaturely in any way. So then, but we still have to reconcile. We still have to deal with these statements that are plain here. And this is not a translation issue. These, these, are, these are plain statements the scripture makes that God has provoked to anger, that he is moved to pity. So when these statements describe you or me, then we can say, yes, that's a real change. If I am provoked to anger, that's a real change. I was pleasant and congenial one moment, and no longer am I pleasant and congenial. I am angry. Or one moment I was happy and carefree, and the next moment I am moved to pity, and something has changed. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. There is a a statement here. This is respect to, to the kingship of Saul. And I'm not going to read the, the whole the whole chapter. You can go back and read that all in, in context later on. But I want to draw your attention to a couple of, of passages. Now, keep in mind, we're going to look at two passages that are in the same chapter written by the same human author. Of course, we know it's the same divine author. Look at verse 11. 
We're back up to verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. If you've got a King James Version, it will say God has repented that he made Saul. Okay, that's, that's difficult to work with, but let's go down to verse 28. <clears throat> and Samuel said to him, Samuel's now speaking to Saul. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So which is it, Samuel? The Lord regretted that he, had, that he made Saul king, or the Lord is not a man and he doesn't have regret. How do we deal with this? is in the same chapter. Is it a different word? Maybe in the Hebrew, no, it's the same word. Again, the King James translates it repent. Here it's regret in the ESV. But either way, it's, it's, a, it's a turning from. It's, it represents, if, if it were talking about me or you, it would represent a change of mind. Sure, you've done that. You put somebody in charge of something, and then later on you go, I wish I had not done that. And the reason you wish you hadn't done that is because you now see something, you now perceive or understand something that you didn't previously. Because you're not omniscient, but God is. So was there something that God failed to see? And then he said, yeah, I missed it with that with Saul. I didn't know he was going to do this. So now I reg- no, that's No, we know that's not what happened. So how do we think about this? What, what, are there some interpretive principles that can guide us when we run into these kinds of statements? And here is a helpful interpretive principle. If you have two, in this case, we have two texts that are in the same chapter. We give priority to the one that speaks of God's nature and essence over the one that speaks of his outward actions. There is one text here that gives to us very plainly a statement about God's essence, about his nature. Verse 28, Samuel says to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. You see the distinction. God is not a creature. God is not like us. So then how do we come back to verse 11 and understand this correctly, where the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king. This is a a condescension of language. The Lord is accommodating himself to creatures by way of language so that we can understand outwardly what has taken effect. This is not a change of God. This is not a change inwardly in him. God is announcing, I I installed Saul as king. I'm going to remove him. It's a change in action, not a change in volition. It's not a change of his will. It's not a change of his nature. It's not a change of of information available to God. Uh, If you you read on this issue of, of impassibility, of immutability, you will no doubt run across at some point the word anthropopathism. If you want a big word to write down, anthropopathism. Well, that anthro is talking about hum- humanity. We get the word anthropology. It's talking about mankind. This is in pathism. That's that's a it's a statement of of passions. There are in the scriptures anthropomorphisms, where where the, the psalmist talks about the wings of God. 
Well, does God have wings? No, we know that. We know that's an accommodation of language. It's, it's a poetic description. Uh, we, even, even when he delivered his people from Egypt, it was his mighty hand and outstretched arm. Does God have a body? Does God have a hand and arm? No, he doesn't. But it's, it's a figure of speech to accommodate himself to creatures who can understand what he's, what he's saying in, in the manner of his communication with them. And we have something very similar here, where those texts that, that appear to communicate that, that God is responding emotionally in a situation, that he was provoked to anger or moved to pity, we have to recognize and interpret those verses in light of the rest of the Scripture that teaches us what about God? He is utterly unchangeable. He is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. There is no variation or shadow in him due to change. And this is important for us to understand this because if we don't, we don't understand the expression of his anger or the expression of his grace and mercy. And that will, that will affect then how we respond. In Psalm 18, verse 25, the psalmist declares, With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute or just. For you save unafflicted people, but eyes which are lifted up, you bring down. The Lord is is saying here through the psalmist that the way a people perceives God may change, but God does not change. John Owen presents this, this very similar question. He says, are there not, according to the perpetual tenor of the scriptures, affections and passions in God, such as anger, fury, zeal, wrath, love, hatred, mercy, grace, jealousy, repentance, grief, joy, and fear? Now that's an honest question, isn't it? Doesn't the scripture describe to us God in these ways? The answer clearly is yes, but here's his longer answer. To the whole... I ask whether these things are in the scriptures ascribed properly unto God, denoting such affections and passions in him as those in us are, which are so termed, or whether they are assigned to him and spoken of him metaphorically, only in reference to his outward works and dispensations correspondent and answering to the actings of men, in whom such affections are, and under the power whereof they are in those actings. If the latter be affirmed, then as such an attribution of them unto God is eminently consistent with all his infinite perfections and blessedness. So there can be no difference about this question, and the answers given thereunto, all men readily acknowledge that in this sense the Scripture doth ascribe all the affections mentioned unto God. So, in, in other words... God's outward actions are presented to us in the scriptures in such a way that we, we find in him a metaphorical correspondence to our human emotions. But this does not represent a change in God. God, is again, is not like man. We, we act under the power of our emotions, don't we? And we might even say something like, well, my, my anger got the better of me. And I acted accordingly. Do we ascribe the same kinds of attribute to God? That God just got got worked up and he acted in this way. Or that, that out of my excessive sorrow, 
I mean, I just, I felt pity and I, and I was played a fool. I, I ended up being a sucker because someone took me for a ride because I, I, I was moved with compassion for them. Is, is God moved in such a way? The answer is no. God acts according to his unchanging, immutable nature and will. In his book, All That Is in God, James Dolezal, and we'll, our, in our school of faithful men, will be studying this book later in the year. He says this, this is helpful, I think. God's glory is not actually increased when we glorify him. We should, know, we should understand these. When, when we glorify God, we are not increasing anything in God. No, no more than the moon reflecting the light of the sun increases the glory of the sun. God's glory is not actually increased when we glorify him. His perfect fullness of love is not intensified by our acts of obedience. His intrinsic infinite hatred for sin is not made a little hotter by our transgressions. All these things, being glorious, loving, opposed to sin, God simply is in and of himself. If you want a really fancy word, this is the isness of God. This is the being of God. He goes on, the delight God manifests in repentant sinners and the wrath he reveals against the ungodly are nothing but his own fullness of perfect being variously disclosed with reference to particular creatures at different times. Man is not the agency by which these actualities are produced in God. Human actions are simply the occasion for the unfolding of God's, and here's a Latin phrase, ad extra, display of these unchanging and unacquired virtues. And, And Odd extra or ad extra is a Latin phrase that means basically to the outside, toward the outside. So this is God's unchangeable nature being expressed at extra, to the outside, to those of us as creatures who observe his acts. And perhaps you, you find yourself thinking sometimes in a way that the Israelites thought a number of times. We're going to see this in the book of Judges. They found themselves under the hand of their oppressors. They, they realized it was our actions that caused this. Now what we need to do is cry out to God in such a way that we may change him from a God who is angry with us, change him to a God who is merciful towards us. Can, can you imagine where this can slip into the mind of a Christian? who doesn't understand God's unchanging nature? Have you ever thought, surely God is angry with me because of my sin, and now I need to do something to change his mind so that he is not angry with me anymore and that I will experience his shining face upon me? Maybe you've thought that way. Maybe you've met with a brother or sister who's been discouraged in those things and is thinking those ways. This is is why... for us to understand the unchanging nature of God is so critical to our, our walk before him. This is, this is not just, I know I've had to go through some, some, some more technical things doctrinally, but it is not merely a technical distinction. It has huge implications for how we walk before the Lord. And, and notice something. As the people of God here in Judges, we're going to see this pattern. We see it in chapter 2. We see it over and over again. They know that God is angry with them because of their sin. They cry out to God in order to change him in some way so that he will be merciful to them. But notice what's missing. Nowhere in chapter 2 is the word repentance used. 
Nowhere, in fact, the only time that that the idea of turning is present is when the people turn away from God to their idols. See, what's happening here is there's no repentance. There's a crying out to God because they're miserable. They're in great distress. They're hurting. So they cry out to God. And see, what happens is, if, if we think in ways that are similar to the way that they were thinking, we have to change God by our remorse. We have to change God by means of our repentance. That will change God. Then what inevitably happens is there's no genuine repentance taking place. Genuine repentance is a product of grace, an overflow of God's love to us. It's a response of creatures to the unmerited grace of God. But see, when you think that I'm, I'm, I'm actually doing something to change God from a state of anger to a state of mercy, that's not grace, is it? In the absence of grace, there will also be an absence of genuine repentance. There may be, as we saw before, outward moral reformation of some kind, but it, it doesn't last because it's, it's, it's not an inside-out change. In, in himself... In his being, in his essence, our triune God does not change. And you know what? We don't want an emotional God, do we? Do you want a God who's like you? Who who is so fickle and who changes because something bad has happened? Because someone has offended you and you change. I change. I don't want a God like that. We don't want a God like that. We want a God who is fixed and who is immovable. In our Confession of Faith, in chapter 2, our London Confession, this is, this is the very first paragraph, this is the very first things that, that, that our Reformed Fathers said about God himself. The Lord our God is but one, only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable, and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who, who will by no means clear the guilty. Saints, our, our God is incomprehensible. That means he, and we use these multiple statements of of negation, negative statements about God, which seems counterproductive at first, but the the goal is to distinguish him from the creature. He is incomprehensible, meaning he is not able to be comprehended. He is immutable, meaning he is not changeable. He is immortal, meaning he is not mortal. He is immense, which means he cannot be contained. And to confess, as we do, that he is without body. We don't, he does not have a body like men. Children's Catechism teaches us that, doesn't it? God does not have a body like men. He's not, he's not a physical being. 
He's without parts. God is, indivis- is, is, is indivisible. He doesn't have components. He is not something that's the sum total of his righteousness, of his anger, of his justice, of his mercy, of his goodness, his holiness. We don't put all those things together and make God. God is. We are parts. We have a body and a soul. And our body has other component parts. We have feet and toes and, and heads and everything else in between. God is not comprised of parts. And he is a God who is without passions. He is not acted upon by his creatures. Now, we have an advantage here that the Israelites didn't have. We certainly have a greater light, but there's something significant that's happened historically since God's dealing with his people under the Old Covenant, and that's the incarnation. The eternally begotten, second person of the Trinity, the holy eternal Son, who is God of God, very God of very God, took on human flesh. The Son now has both a divine and a human nature. Perfectly joined together, inseparable, not mixed together. And according to his humanity, the writer of Hebrews tells us he is a perfect high priest who has now who's experienced our human weaknesses. He's experienced the frailty of the flesh. He's experienced even our emotions but without sin. We have a perfect Savior. We don't need to go back and say, God the Father is passable. Or even that the divine nature of the Son is passable because we have a perfect advocate who knows our weaknesses. See, if we go back and make God passable, make God an emotional God, we do violence to the necessity of the incarnation. And we also miss the blessing of having a perfect high priest who sympathizes with us in every way. See, the gospel comes to us, this declaration of God made flesh, this, this declaration that, that God has so loved the world that he would send his only begotten son to take on our flesh, to walk among us, to die for, as, and pay the penalty for the sin of all who would believe in him. That declares to us that who needs to change here? It's me. It's you. It is not God who changes. God has sent his son to bear our sorrow and sin. It is his spirit's power that changes us. And it's a change that comes from within. It's an indwelling. It's a, it's a, it's a change that comes when we simply believe that God will do what he says he will do. The command of the gospel is to flee to Christ. The command of the gospel is not to try to, to change God, to change God's standing towards you, to change God's position towards you, to change his demeanor towards you. The gospel is to believe that Christ has died, that he's born the entire weight of your sin. That he has nailed that certificate of death to the cross. That he's declared it is finished. And then when God rose him, raised him from the grave, proved that Christ was that acceptable sacrifice. He was the perfect lamb. The sinless, spotless lamb of God. 
And all who will believe that will be reconciled to God the Father. The changeless, immutable God who reigns and rules. See, through the book of of Judges, the Holy Spirit wants us to see this stark contrast between the forgetfulness of God's people. One of the things you ought to see in the book of Judges as we go through is you ought to see that, that per, what, what James calls that perfect mirror. And you will look and you will see, this is me. I, I'm, I'm changing constantly. I'm forgetting these things of God. I'm forgetting his commandments. I'm forgetting his promises. I'm forgetting his character. I'm forgetting who he is. But God is unchangeable. And it is in him that I have refuge. It is him that I have hope. It is him that I have safety. It is him that I have deliverance from sin because he doesn't change. So as we we see this cycle over and over again in the Judges, and we see that language, God was moved to pity, have it fixed in your mind that God is not changing there. God is acting according to his perfect will, his immutable will, and his covenant faithfulness. And, And his... His outward dealings with his people are are, are different in the sense that they had been obedient according to his conditional covenant, and he blessed them. And they were disobedient according to his conditional covenant with them. They received the promise that he gave to them. You do this, you're going to have consequences for that. But then glory in the fact that Christ has come and by his own body and blood has cut a new covenant with us. One that is not conditioned upon our obedience. It is not conditioned upon our faithfulness. It is not conditioned upon our perfect remembrance. It is conditioned upon the finished work of Christ, having already done everything that was necessary, having already accomplished all that was required to ransom his people, to make us a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And it will be out of the overflow of that that we will consider chapter 3, begin considering chapter 3 next week, and recognizing that this nonconformity to the culture around us is nothing short of war. But if we don't understand who God is and who we are, we'll even get that wrong, won't we? We'll fight like pagans. We'll think we have to change God. We'll think we have to be like the prophets of Baal that, that Elijah dealt with crying out to God, cutting themselves. Oh, will you come and start the fire? Will you, will you rain down from it? Because they had to persuade Baal to act. And, and that kind of pagan thinking can slip into our Christian thought as well, can't it? That we think I've got to compel God to do something. I've got to change him in some way by my performance, by my actions. May we rest together, saints, in a God who does not change. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for making yourself known. I I pray that you will help us to sort through those things that we have read and heard today that you will give us a great comfort in knowing who you are, that you will give us a a heart desire, a zeal to remember you, to remember your, your commandments, your covenant with us. 
to pass these things along to our children, to pass them along to our spiritual children, to those who will come after us. Grant us the grace, most of all, to know you, to know you as our God, to know you as our Heavenly Father, the one to whom we can cry, Abba, Father. We thank you for the work of our Savior, having accomplished all your perfect will, having surrendered himself, submitted himself to the point of obedience, even to death on a cross. We thank you that you've raised him, that you've seated him at, at your own right hand, and that we, we wait eagerly for his return. Father, will you bless your people? Will you comfort us? Will you provoke us to think carefully and rightly about who you are and, and about who we are before you? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.